uh, let me pray before I begin, and then I will be in uh, Luke chapter 9 this morning. Father, I pray that your word would be the thing that we hear, that it wouldn't be my words, but your word that we understand, and that any errors of mine would be wiped out of people's minds, and that your spirit would be followed. Help us to follow you and to listen to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I, uh, I don't, uh, it is my habit, and it has been my habit of over the last uh, 13 years in my uh, church that we are a part of, that when I've been preaching, uh, I'm preaching from the lectionary because that's how Anglicans do it. So um, when, uh, when I am getting the uh, privilege of, of visiting with you, sometimes I've been able to steel myself against my habit and choose a passage. But uh, I feel so much more comfortable having it restrained for me. You have to preach this passage. This is the one. So I, I read my children the lectionary passages and let them decide. Was there, uh, I said, God, pray if there's one of these passages that would be the right one for someone this, this week, that one of my kids would at least say, I want to know about that one. And that's what I got. I had one say, I want to know what is Jesus talking about when he says, as we heard in uh, the end of Luke 9, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And also before that, that the request had been, let, them, let me say farewell to those at my home. Does Jesus think about, who, what, is it, what is this, if we follow him, we have to abandon our families? Or is this just about a preaching ministry? Or Jesus is saying sometimes are hard. So that is the task I was set to. And, you know, I found it was, it was, it was very simple. It was all cleared up very quickly as soon as I started taking hours and hours to try to figure out how to handle <laughs> explaining this passage. Um, so I had my, my work cut out for me, but I believe that uh, I can say something that might be helpful to us in, in hearing this this morning. Um, recently, uh, let's see, eight days ago, eight days ago was June 18th, which happens to be the birthday of Sir Paul McCartney. And I know this because my children know this and they had a plan to, to uh, watch a Beatles movie on the birthday of Paul McCartney and um, that was their plan. Um, I heartily approved. And uh, he was just in town and I didn't see him. So um, the, the point of bringing up Paul McCartney is that um, Many, many years ago, at the end of the tenure of the Beatles' time, was a very, very famous song and album title, Let It Be. Right? And uh, he sings about, in times of trouble, that words of wisdom come to him from who? His mother, Mary. Now, incidentally, his mother's name is Mary. Right? So this is not just some... Um, pulled out of the Bible, convenient thing, but it actually is pulled out of the Bible, right? Because 
the most famous words of Mother Mary in the Bible are, let it be unto me according to your word. That is the word, the word in, in the Vulgate, the Latin translation is fiat. And that's, we probably are familiar easily in all uh, Western cultures with the word fiat, especially because that one path, that one response of Mary when she was told, you are going to, to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit and bear the Messiah. She said, let it be fiat, let it be unto me, according to your word. This, I believe, is part of um, a key to understanding the book of Luke. And this is in the first chapter of Luke, verse 28 of chapter 1. Uh, is the beginning of, sorry, verse 38 is where she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary was someone who was, in verse 28, highly favored. And she was the mother of Jesus. So here I have two keys to understanding what we're looking at when we hear this hard saying of Jesus in Luke 9.62. Because we have an instance here of someone who is a family member and who is saying, I will listen and obey the word of God. Uh, and both of those things are in question. Does Jesus, how does he, how does the New Testament specifically Jesus, how about specifically Jesus in the book of Luke, teach us to regard family members? Is it, they're unimportant, just go to ministry, ignore your family? Or is it that there was an issue superseding it, which is, I who am God, know all hearts and know all situations, and I specifically in this task for this moment have told you to do something and you need to do what I say right now and I'll take care of the details. And maybe I've spoiled it, but that's the answer, right? <laughs> Jesus calls people and expects them to get up and go. Jesus does not teach us that our families are unimportant. Sometimes we may not understand all of the circumstances surrounding obedience to something but we have to obey and we have to trust that the one calling us to obedience is not only in charge of us but unlike our earthly parents he's he's perfect he's god but even as earthly parents i i assume you like me call your children to do things and you would really like them done sooner rather than later. And you find it offensive if they say, sure, in a minute, right? If it's, uh, okay, I'll do that, and then continue something that's not doing what we said, right? Delayed, dis delayed obedience is disobedience. And that's what we are learning, and we'll come to see that from Jesus. And I want to point this out by looking through the book of Luke at verses that have to do with listening to Jesus. And then I want to look at verses that have to do with Jesus and family. And I want to show you this so you can get a context for hearing this other verse. Um, 
In, in chapter 4, Jesus, um, Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbath. This is verses 31 and 32. Luke 4, 31 and 32. Uh, he, he, as he was teaching them on the Sabbath, they were astonished at his teaching for his word-possessed authority. So that's a, one of a, a clear statement that Jesus' word is authoritative. Um, the, he also, throughout the book of Luke, does a lot of healings. And he runs afoul of the Pharisees a number of times. And one of them is because he healed um, on the Sabbath. Another one, this one I'm looking at right now in chapter 6, is because they were eating grains that they gleaned from uh, fields of wheat on the Sabbath. And what is his answer to this question? I just have to say, I love listening to Jesus in his combat with the Pharisees because he's very clever. Um, convenient, if you're purporting to say that this is God, that he's so clever, but he is. Uh, and he he sometimes answers them with things where he puts them on the defensive. Sometimes he backs them into corners that they can't get out of. And sometimes he just tells them, as in this case, I get to make the rules. I mean, this is a very, very bold statement here. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And he says, haven't you heard what David did when he, and I'll skip past the details of that because I want to get to this point. In verse 5, he said to them, the Son of Man, pause here, Son of Man means the Messiah. He said this is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. When Jesus talks about himself, he just says, the Son of Man, that's me. And they would know that this is a huge claim because after um, after the uh, Daniel chapter 7, in which the Messiah is carried up to the throne of God and receives worship from the nations, in that passage, it was Daniel's vision was, I saw one who looked like a son of man. Well, that's just an idiom in Hebrew for somebody. It, it was not a beast. It was not a plant. It was a son of man. In other words, it was a human. A person I saw was carried up. A, so there was a guy on a cloud being carried up to heaven. But after that point, that passage is so important to identifying the Messiah that after that point, the Messiah gets this name. The guy that Daniel thought looked like a person. And that term, son of man, becomes a name for the Messiah. So after this, Jesus can just say the son of man and refer to himself. Uh, in fact, in, uh, in Luke, uh, in the uh, genealogy in Luke, and I want to say I, I didn't, hadn't thought about looking at this before, so I had to find it here. Uh, in the genealogy that's in chapter 3, it starts and it goes from the present backwards. Matthew's goes from the back end forwards. Uh, from uh, from Abraham down to Jesus. But in Luke, it goes backwards. It starts with Jesus 
who was adopted by Joseph, who was the son of Heli. And it goes on back, all the way back to the very beginning. Side point here, the genealogy says that the genealogies in Genesis are historical because we're tracing lineage here. So it gets back to the ones that we start to say, uh, moving out of the ones that sound unfamiliar to the names that we remember and recognize. Son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, it's interesting that Luke does this and sets this up so that he can say God made Adam. Adam is the firstborn in this line. The word son of Adam, if you translate it into Hebrew and back into Greek, is son of man. So he gets a chance to say the son of man, the son of God, which are the two terms in the Old Testament for the Messiah. And he says them both at the same time. Well, I said all that to say that Jesus is talking about himself when he says to them, how, they say, how can you do this on the Sabbath that's not lawful to do? And his conclusion is, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So his answer, quite frankly, is, I made that rule. <laughs> I can do what I want with it. Um, which is awesome because it is enragingly blasphemous if it's not true. Um, so you see, he's not, uh, um, he's not picking up friends in his ministry uh, from everyone that he talks to. There are a lot of people that love Jesus and he, all the things that he does. He heals, he casts out demons, he gives people sight, he gives people hearing, he gives people um, their forgiveness of, of their hugely shameful publicly known sins. And he just authorizes, by the way, God forgives you, on my word. And that really makes those people happy, and it really makes the religious authorities unhappy. And this is not because they're religious authorities. It's because they don't believe Jesus, right? The true religious there are religious authorities of this time who do convert, Nicodemus being one of them. So I, I just want to point out, Jesus is not opposed in principle to Pharisaism, technical Pharisaism from that time period. Jesus was very, very similar to the Pharisees. The difference was he did what he said. Right? He even tells the people, Listen to what they teach. Don't just act like that. Just don't act like that. He says, they sit on the seat of Moses. Do what they say. So Jesus is approving their general theology and their general teaching as opposed to the Sadducees or who didn't believe in the afterlife, who don't believe in the miracles. But he then says, you need to actually, when you hear the word of God, you need to obey it, and that's what the Pharisees don't do. The Pharisees can teach a good game, but they cannot play it. They don't actually do what they say, and this is at the heart of this whole question of understanding this verse. When the word of God is said, we actually have to follow it. Otherwise, it's worthless. So, 
moving forward uh, on to more about the authority of Jesus. Uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? This is in chapter 6. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, let me tell you what he's like. He's like a guy building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation of the rock, on the rock, and when the flood rose, the stream broke against it, and the house couldn't shake it because it had been built correctly. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Yes, I paraphrased a little bit in there. But the, what Jesus said is, the foundation for all of your actions has to be my word. What I say has to happen. Very arrogant if he's not who he says he is. You know when they were on the boat and Jesus fell asleep and there's a storm and it's threatening them all and they went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. And what a comment. What are you going to do about it in a crisis situation? How do you act? Well, I walk outside and I tell that crisis to get in line. Quit bothering us. Because that's what Jesus, I, mean, I, I don't do that. But I'm saying this is what Jesus did that is not like what we can do. And it's amazing because they say, who then is this that he commands even wind and water and they obey him? Chapter 8, he says in, verses 18, in verse 18, take care how you hear. For the, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. This is another hard saying. I want to very quickly explain it to you because it's a, it's a good one to get under your belt of hard sayings you understand. Because you know that Jesus says, the one who has, I'm going to give more. And the one who has not, I'm going to take what he thinks he has. And that doesn't sound like what we're used to hearing from Jesus. But the hard saying here, this is about explaining the parables. And this is very specifically about understanding the parables. Because Jesus tells parables and his disciples say, Okay, Jesus, what was that about? And he says, Well, I told it in parables. Why? So that some of the people won't get it. I veiled my meaning in a parable because I don't want everyone yet to understand what I'm talking about. But to you, disciples... It has been granted to understand this. I'm going to tell you what it means. And you'll notice that the, when he tells the parables, the ones he doesn't want to understand it grumble and get, get upset and wander off, and they, they don't listen to him. But the, anybody who comes to him and says, Jesus, what does that mean? He says, ah, to you I will give this understanding. Well, what's the difference in those two people, those two sets of people? The disciples have faith in Jesus. The Pharisees have not faith in Jesus. And to the one who has trust for Jesus, more will be given understanding of Jesus. But the one who does not have faith in Jesus, even what he thinks he has will be taken from him. 
So the Pharisees think they understand, and even that will be stripped away from them. And that's all specifically given in explaining how the parables function. The point of them is to elicit a division between the people who are seeking to understand and to those who just don't like Jesus and wander away. I think you probably have opportunity these days to see some people talking about Christianity in the public square. You might have noticed some people saying some unpleasant things about Christians this weekend. I have read some things I can't repeat in public. Um, and, and, I, and I don't say this at all to be ungracious toward people we wish to have their minds changed. And we, some violent enemies of the church are changed in their hearts. People like Paul have their hearts changed. But one thing you notice is there is a complete difference between people who hear the word of God and dismiss it and those who hear the word of God and say, I don't understand that, tell me more. And those who come seeking him, Jesus says, the one who seeks me, I will in no wise cast out. So take care how you hear. Make sure you pay attention. And so in, in, that's Luke 8, 18. Take care how you hear the one who has, I will give more. That passage says when you hear the word of God and it bothers you and you don't get it, take care how you hear. And I think that the encouragement there is number one, number one plan item when you don't understand a passage of scripture, pray. Dear Lord, I don't understand this passage. Please grant me understanding of this passage. Countless times in my life I have prayed that, not expecting a quick answer, and have gotten a quick answer to that kind. I'm not saying you're going to pray this and three minutes later you're going to know it. But along with the disciples who come to Jesus and say, well, tell us the answer, you also have to try to do the work of reading. If you don't understand a verse, spread out and read around it. Spread out and read further. Ask somebody who maybe has studied it. Just don't give up on it because it sounds hard. Don't give up on it because you think there's an apparent contradiction. Go find somebody who can explain it to you. This word has been public for 2,000 years. I mean, some of it for a lot longer than that. And there are a lot of people who could help you. And to my satisfaction, it works. There's no, the things that sound like contradictions at first, they work out. There is a, not just a, a, someone can kind of give you an explanation. There's, I have never yet found a situation in which there was not a very good answer to the reason it sounded like a contradiction, but it wasn't. So notice what happens when Jesus calls disciples. Do you remember when Jesus calls Peter? When he had finished speaking, chapter 5, verse 4, he says, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night. Now, this is not someone who's been around Jesus. Jesus just showed up and got in his boat. Right? Jesus is teaching crowds, and when he gets to the water, Peter's been fishing all night unsuccessfully, and Jesus says, hey, can I sit in your boat and talk for a while to these people? 
And so Peter, named Simon, says, sure, I'll let you do that. And then he gets up and at the end of his sermon turns around and says, Simon, cast your nets on the other side. And he's like, we've been here all night. We got nothing, Jesus. But since you say so, I'll do it. And when he does, there was so much, uh, there was so much catch that, that Peter fell at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, depart from me. I am a sinful man. He is astonished by the authority of Jesus. And then Jesus says what? Leave your nets and come follow me. So sometimes Jesus does tell us, I need you to step out of this immediate situation. It's going to be uncomfortable for you. But you've got to do it right now. Take care how you hear when you hear that because Jesus knows more than you do. Um, a final thing about the issue of Jesus preaching and his, his authority. This is, uh, I, I apparently I have cut off the chapter number here, but it's in verse 42 of some chapter of Luke. Seven forty-three. Um, no. All right. So uh, it says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and would have kept him from leaving them. So Jesus has been teaching; he's got to go. And the people say, "No, no, no! Don't go, Jesus. Stay here." And his response is, "I must." preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well for I was sent with this purpose so let's unpack that for a second God his father told him go preach and that's the same thing that's happening in the verses we read Jesus tells somebody go preach the gospel I choose you as a disciple and Jesus says I I can't stay here. I have to move. I have to move on because it's my schedule says I have another task sent by my father and it's in preaching the gospel. So I cannot delay because I have a mission of the gospel urgency here. I have to keep moving on my father's schedule. So I don't get to choose for myself. Even Jesus who has all this authority that we've been hearing throughout the book of Luke says I do what my father says well a uh, quick review of of how does the book of Luke treat family um, there is a uh, uh, there's a verse that you may remember where uh, uh, the Jesus is preaching in the middle of a crowd and his disciples come to him and say Jesus you're uh, your mom and your brothers are here and they want to see you. And Jesus says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It doesn't say anything in there that Jesus doesn't go see his mother and his brothers. Okay, so we could misread that as, well, he dismissed his mother and his brothers. But it doesn't say Jesus refused to see his mothers and his brothers, but I think he took a moment 
ah, here's one last clever, wise thing I can tell the disciples. I'm stuck in this crowd, and you're saying, hey, Jesus, you got to get out here because your mom and your brothers want you right now. And he's like, my mother and my brothers are the people who hear my word and do it. And I, I am assuming Jesus did go talk to them. But he was making a point to the disciples that anyone who hears his word and does it is that important to Jesus. You, if you hear Jesus' word and do it, you are as important to Jesus as his mother. You are like a brother to Jesus. If you hear his word and do it, you are a close family member of Jesus's. So he's kind of telling the disciples, it's not like I'm not with family here. However, having heard that passage that puts a slight negative sound on how he treats his family, I would remind you he's not saying they're not my family. He's just saying all these people are my family too. But positively, it goes on and on. Jesus healing people's family members. The first one in the book of uh, Luke in chapter 4, I think it's the first one, Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law. So he's called Simon as a disciple, and one of the very first things he does for him is heal his wife's mother. So Jesus is caring for people's family members. He heals, do you remember the widow of Nain who walks out with her? She's a widow already, and now her son is dead. And Jesus sees her and has compassion on her and raises the boy from the dead. Um, the centurion has a servant, uh, a, a uh, Roman centurion that Jesus says has better faith than he's found in all Israel, says, uh, please, this, this servant who is part of my household is sick. Just say the word and he'll be well. J uh, Jairus's daughter, the, uh, the uh, ruler of the synagogue, his daughter was sick and in fact died while Jesus was on the way to her house, but he goes and ra raises her from the dead. Um, actually, he just says that she's she's going to be raised, and when they get back, she's. Let me not let me not double down on on the uh, passage I, that I'm not reading at the moment. I don't want to I don't want to say something you watch uh, later and say that's not right. He wasn't reading the passage. Um, there was a boy in chapter nine who was convulsing from a spirit, and the father begs him. So over and over, Jesus proves to love people's family members and say they're important. Specifically in the passage of the widow of Nain, he says, Young man, I say to you, arise. This is chapter 7. And it says, And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Do you remember when Jesus is at the cross? The, the only people who are present still at the cross all the other disciples are old enough that they would have to, they would have been in trouble. They'd have to flee because of it. But John, the cousin of Jesus who is the gospel writer, not John the Baptist, his other John, he has two cousins named John. And they're both uh, important to us. The one wrote books of the Bible and the other one was the baptizer. Right? So the one who wrote books in the Bible, his cousin John was young young enough to the women and the children would not have been chased off at the cross as you know enemies of the state but the other disciples were in hiding because of 
fear of them. So he says to Mary and John, John, this is your mother now. Woman, behold your son. Why? Because Jesus had been taking care of John for his whole ministry, a young cousin that he's taking care of, the one who leans on Jesus during meals because he's his little cousin, the one that Jesus loved. He's a family member. And he's been taking care of him as a, uh, you remember John's, uh, John has, um, I just want to say that John has been given to Mary, and Mary is being given to John because Jesus is caring for the family life of his mother and his cousin who need people to take care of them, and they can take care of each other. So over and over, Jesus overwhelmingly cares for us and our family members. And I think that is enough to say, that is enough to say that when we hear Jesus say to this guy who says, let me go say farewell to my family, and he says, that's not what I told you to do. That we know that he's not saying it because family doesn't matter. He's saying it because Jesus knows everything. Uh, I, I feel like it's running too long for me to, to run you through verses in Luke where Jesus knows what people are thinking. But those verses that are in there, Luke says, and Jesus knew what was in their hearts. So let's just talk for a moment about the actual verse in uh, chapter 9. In, uh, in this passage, Jesus is being, I want to talk about his tone. Jesus is being serious, but a little bit humorous. And Jesus is frequently both serious and humorous at the same time. You remember that time that Jesus said, watch out about trying to pick at your brother's eye when you've got a, a railroad tie sticking out of your eye? You know, some big log, and you're like, oh, you got something here. That's funny. Um, uh, when Jesus said, um, when Jesus said, uh, you know, you, uh, you said, waiter, waiter, there's something in my soup. Oh, I see, it's terrible. Yes, this little gnat. Oh, I thought you meant the camel. Well, that's funny. You saw the gnat in your soup but not the camel on your spoon. That, uh, that's funny, and not only is it, uh, I think that the words gnat and camel almost rhyme with one. I think it's like galam and gamal or something like that. He's playing with words, too. So Jesus is very clever and funny, and sometimes delivers serious messages with memorably funny things. And I think in tone, if we allow ourselves to believe that Jesus is as clever as the passages sound like he is, it actually makes the tone make more sense to us when he says something that sounds hard. Sometimes it's hard because he's saying something clever. And in this passage, I think that's part of what's going on. Uh, let me read the verses right before it. You see he tells another joke. To another, in verse 59, to another he said, follow, he says, follow me. But, the, but he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now this doesn't mean... Last night my dad died, and uh, I can follow you, but I've got it like, I have a legal responsibility to burying my father, as the law says. I can't just leave his, you know, I have to take care of him. Uh, this is an idiom for, 
I, Jesus, I really want to be part of your ministry. Let me just wait till my father has passed away. After I no longer have to, you know, fall in line with the things that my father would like me to do, I'll come do what you would like me to do. And Jesus says, come on, man. I'm calling you to the gospel ministry of preaching life. Why don't you let the dead bury their own dead? Well, that's serious, but it's kind of funny that he's saying, let the dead bury their own dead. Because it's a metaphor for leaving the people who aren't going to care to go care about their nonsense on their own. And sometimes that's a very, very helpful thing for Christians to learn to do. When you are trying to engage with someone over, you may have to have a conversation about abortion in the coming times. And they say to you something that amounts to nonsense. Sometimes you just have to say, all right, okay, um, I'm, I'm glad to have a conversation with you, and just leave it and let go. Because they, if they have stuff to bury, let them take care of it on their own. And that doesn't mean don't care for people. It means don't get embroiled in the nonsense of people who don't care for God. In the verse right after this, then we get to our concern, which is, and I'll point out that that to Jesus, let me, let me point out that even to that guy, he doesn't say, he doesn't harshly condemn the guy. The guy says, well, I mean, I've got my family. I'm not sure my, fam my father's going to be on board with this. Let me wait till he's gone, and then I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm your man, Jesus. And Jesus is like, come on, that, let the dead bury their own dead. He turns to that man and says, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So he's not done with the guy. He didn't hear the guy say, I have a social concern in my house and I kind of want to skirt it. Can, can I hang on for a little bit, Jesus, and then I'll be like totally 100% yours? And Jesus is like, That's, they're never going to come on, to my, on board with me. So just come on now. In fact, let me tell you what you should do. You should stop what you're doing and go preach the gospel. So Jesus is not in tone here, he is not cutting off the people he's talking to and saying, eh, loser, get out of my sight. He's gently and humorously correcting them. And so we get to the funny thing he says about the plow. Another said to him, I will follow you, Lord, but let me say farewell to those at my home, which I think is similar to the let me bury my father. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow but stands backwards. Now, it, you read it as no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. And to us, that sounds, in your, in your worry about what this passage might mean, that sounds like, wait, is he saying if I became a Christian but I, ever, I had a thought about like what it was like when I wasn't a Christian? Or I started thinking, man, it used to have some good leeks and onions back in Egypt. Uh, man, it was, it's hard being a Christian. It's harder than it used to be for me. Or you, and you have thoughts about this. Is that Jesus saying, if you've thought about how nice it was before you were a Christian, you are not fit for the kingdom of God. Get out of my sight. 
That is not what he is saying. He is not saying no one who starts into this work and then like thinks about so he's saying specifically directionally no one who plows and you need to look to, in order to plow a straight line you need to look at something in the distance and fix your gaze on it and walk toward it but you're like looking around backwards so the image is a funny one where if you start to plow but then are like not looking at where you're going and then is the phrase, the word fit. And let me give you the big relief reading this. The word fit means useful. No one who takes up the plow of gospel ministry trying to sow the seed of the gospel, but is all thinking about how they can get back there. No one I tell to go this way, but walks that way first, is useful to the kingdom of God. And remember, it doesn't, it's Jesus is not sending these people away. His response is, and therefore, my answer for you is go preach the gospel. So I've corrected you. Now go do what I said. So when the guy says, Jesus, I feel like I can go with you if you let me wait a little bit longer and do something different first. He says, man, that's not a, that's not a helpful attitude for my work. The kingdom of God is forward motion. The kingdom of God is listening to me. And if you're trying to do anything other than what I've asked you to do, that is not useful to me. So, let me tell you how to be useful. Go preach the gospel. I told you to do it. I know all things. I know your heart. I know what's going to happen. We are now marching to execution in Jerusalem. The verses right before this, it said he was about, his time was almost up, so he was going to Jerusalem. The Samaritans weren't happy with him because he had set his face toward Jerusalem. It's like, the time is short. This is dangerous work. I called you specifically to get in board as a soldier in my difficult ministry of walking to death, and you're asking for some time off. First thing, you ever had a, an employer, uh, hey, hey, I'm so glad for this job. Can I, I, need, I need next weekend off. And Jesus is like, well, that's not really the kind. We've been reviewing your application, and you just don't seem like a good fit for us. And that's what he's saying. That attitude is not useful to me. So don't worry. This is not telling you to abandon your family. This is also not telling you that you're going to accidentally stop being beloved to Jesus because you remembered the truth that things were easier before you became a Christian. It's not telling you that if you have had doubts or fears or thoughts about, is God real? How do I know the word of God is true? There's two kinds of people who have those thoughts. Ones who say, I've had a, a thought that maybe God is suspect and I'm going to dismiss him. And there's another group of people that says, I'm having some trouble understanding the Bible. It's giving me unease. So I'm going to pray, I'm going to study it, and I'm going to go ask people who know better. You either, when you come to the crisis of faith, turn away from God or turn toward him. So the Bible is totally, totally aware that people need that grace. The, uh, in, in the uh, epistles, it says, be merciful to those who doubt. That's an instruction to pastors. Be careful with the doubters. 
Be merciful to them. That's the heart of God. He is aware. He will, he, a, a, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He is careful with the weak. But he is not careful with the strong who think they know better than him. The Pharisees who say, eh, I don't need this. I've heard all this before. It's not right. So I said all of that to say this. This is similar in content to when Jesus says, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. It's going to be hard work. But it is not similar in tone because it is, it is telling us, hey, that's not the, when you hear, I'd like to do something other than what you do, God. I want you to remember, you're in some ways, and don't hear this as, un, un, as demeaning to Jesus, but your pal Jesus, he's your God, he's your Lord, but sometimes he tells jokes at your expense too. And sometimes you need to hear him saying, hey, man, that's not a helpful attitude. Can you get on board and go back to preaching the gospel? And that is what he's calling us to do. Let's pray to him. Father, you are an amazing God. You love us and you have really serious work for us. And you have really serious agenda for the world. And yet you're tender when we are weak. You bring us back our dead. You return to life those who have died. You have patience with us when we are frustrating to you. I pray that for every heart here, that you would cause us to be guarded that when we hear your word, we listen carefully, we investigate it, we try to figure it out. We come to you with requests. And if we have doubts, that you would bring us along people to help us understand it. If we have fears, that you would remind us that you are there with us. And specifically, when we have disobedient hearts, we would hear you calling us back and remember that you are gracious, that you are wise. And that we would come, take up our cross daily, and follow you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.